You are listening to Lunk Communique number 6, recorded on the 2nd of January 2009. And I am here today, me being Andrew, with... Monty. Brian. And Jackson Meredith. And today we are going to talk about identity politics. To give you a little background on this term, which is a little bit academic in nature, but rather a simple issue... This is political interest based on identity, or basically concerned with the issues affecting someone personally, say a minority group, a religion, your ethnicity, your gender, anything like that, that may be an interest that you hold very dear to yourself. Like an example that comes to mind would be like feminist groups that only take an interest in issues that affect women or groups based on racial issues. Minority rights, uh, yeah. gay rights, things like that. Gun rights. <laughs> uh, white pride rights. <laughs> okay, so... Now, we're, now, we're primarily concerned with, with progressive identity politics in this show. Yeah, or faux progressive, liberal... And we are now going to proceed to bitch about it. So, <laughs> proceed. Why, why does identity politics suck so much? Go. That might be a bit of a loaded question there, Monty. <laughs> Run with it. Start out with, it fails to cover all the issues. If you're just focusing on one thing, you know, if you succeed in meeting what you set out to do to gain rights for whatever group that you're representing. You're going to have those rights, but the rest of the world is still going to have all its problems. So I think that people, no matter what group they fit into or whatever their interests may be, I think that they need to embrace a sort of philosophy or theory that is all-encompassing and doesn't just focus on this group or that group, but focuses on alleviating the problems that humanity faces across the board. The way I look at it, I think identity politics in many sense uh, do bring people to the political floor sometimes and value definitely in a progressive agenda, but it can be a little bit shallow when you stop your interests at what personally benefits you. It's interesting. I I'd heard some speculation, I don't know the statistics, so this may not be entirely accurate, but I heard some speculation that the uh, the gay marriage ban proposition in California likely passed in large part because Obama was running for president, that he may have drawn a lot of a lot of sort of reactionary fundamentalist black people to the polls who, while they were there to vote for Obama they stayed and voted against gay rights. It's, it's interesting that oppressed groups like, for instance, African Americans may not have sympathies towards other oppressed groups, which I find to be sort of... I just don't really understand it. Like, you would think that they would have a sort of empathy for these other people that are experiencing issues like they went through. My biggest qualm with identity politics would probably be 
uh, any oppressed group vying for status as the number one oppressed group. Yeah. As um, putting themselves mm. above other interests, uh, as a form of hierarchy of oppression, we we deserve more. We deserve better than these other groups. I, I wanted to go back to what, what Brian was talking about. I mean, what what can be especially sad within a, an oppressed group in this culture is especially when black people will pile on to racism against, say, Mexican immigrants. Or, I mean, maybe maybe the most shocking and disturbing example to me is the is just the very existence of biphobia within the gay community. I mean, it's just completely insane how I mean how divisive some of these things can be, even within the oppressed groups, even with people who I mean should just be painfully obvious they're natural allies. And it's interesting to me, that's kind of an affirmation of our culture in a way that you find yourself pulling towards the mainstream by putting down other minority groups. Yeah. It all boils down to, for me, that there really can't be any sort of justice for any one group unless there's justice for, for everyone. There's freedom for everyone or freedom for no one. Yeah. Sort of issue. Or like the, the famous Martin Luther King quote that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Yeah. It's what I would like to uh, think about is a sort of universal suffrage or a universal struggle for, for everyone. Is, uh, human rights across the board is uh, somewhat different than, than most identity politics. Uh, most groups are looking out necessarily for their interests first. I want to ask a question here. Okay, so we're sort of talking here a little bit about blacks against Mexicans, about gays against bisexuals. Now, this is, I mean, this is sort of insane from where we're sitting, but, I mean, where does this come from? Where does this divisive impulse come from, even within oppressed groups? I think you can reject oppression, but still sort of take in the competitive urge. I mean, there's what I would suspect is a subconscious understanding, and maybe you could see this in sibling rivalry, that there's only so much recognition to go around. And possibly if you're attacking other groups, uh, you're going to have more likelihood to be the one that survives. Are these groups or these causes that these groups are fighting for are they are they even very good at identifying the actual fundamental source of where their oppression comes from? Because I, I don't really see that that they're they are very good at at keeping in mind the the problems that they are having stem from larger problems yeah. with the way society is designed in the first place. Basically, you're asking how much any of these organizations really have a political consciousness of what's causing their problems socially. Yeah, and uh, identifying it and actually doing and actually doing things to counter it. It's, it's kind of like what we were talking about in the last show. It seems like a lot of these groups want to just focus on attacking symptomatic issues, what's causing, you know, not getting, not getting to what's, what, where the problems are stemming from, but just a topical approach, just attacking, you know, uh, like feminist groups, 
they recognize that patriarchy exists. At least I'm not aware of any groups that really take a, a, an approach where they're looking at where it comes from and attacking the roots of that. I, I know they're out there, but I've never seen any, encountered any in the community here where they really look to things like religion and they look to things like class, the society that we live in that's class structured and things like that. Well, if, if a feminist believes that a woman should have just as much of a right to be a corporate CEO as a man, is, is, is that really a progressive political outlook? Well, that's... That's, I think, sort of an identity bias, which is a problem I have with identity politics. To continue on going with the feminist issue, uh, obviously a feminist may look at abuse in a relationship, and we're all going to look at that as a bad thing, but why is a man abusing a woman? Uh, obviously they're both being suppressed by an economic system in a way, but there's something causing that. It's not... It's not an issue with one person. It, there's a system, and that is somewhat ad addressed by feminism, but what sort of pressures are causing that to happen, and how do you stop it in the long term, whereas you might be drawn to a short-term solution? It seems to me that what, what a lot of these organizations, or uh, a lot of these people in these organizations, or groups, or uh, the causes they're fighting for, what a lot of them... To, to me, what it seems like is that a lot of them are basically saying that we we should be allowed to conform to this system just as much as these these other people, these you know white heterosexual male, and uh, we, we we should have we should uh, have just as much of a right to conform to the capitalist system as they do. And isn't that great? <laughs> and uh, I think to kind of get back to what your original, Jackson's original question was, is where does all this strife come from? How is it created? And I think that it's either intentionally or unintentionally created by those that are in power to create a sort of division among the, the community, the people. If various groups of people are fighting amongst themselves, they then yeah. they, they, they don't have enough time or resources or energy to fight the actual oppressors. It's sort of like when they blame the lack of employment on, on immigrants or something mm -hmm. like that. It's like they're deflecting this issue towards another group. I think this is most vividly illustrated by the reasons we went to war. As we're going to war in the Middle East, there's uh, Islamophobia being generated in our culture at the same time, uh, even before war, as justifications to go to war. Yeah, and de dehumanizing your future enemy is a universal of all war propaganda. Yeah. And I was watching a, a show on uh, African-American culture, and they were talking about how there were African people in this country before slavery and that they were identifiable and that they didn't have the abilities that the people who lived here before the Native Americans had to disappear amongst the landscape so they were very easily uh, transformed into slaves and that that process of dehumanization was useful to make them into slaves I mean just just in my own personal experience you hear slurs like 
like towel head and camel jockey and things like that being thrown around just rather liberally like in schools and wherever people are that are just really prone to this sort of spread of, of these ideas that you know, Islam is like this religion of, of warfare which I mean I think that there are Islam just like any religion can be interpreted violently you can see something compelling you to violence in the scriptures but it's not any more so than Christianity is for example but there's I mean there's a real proliferation of websites that are just attacking Islam and, and calling it this, this religion of the sword and ironically most of the people that run these websites are American Christians they're applying a a criticism to that that they don't apply elsewhere. Yeah. It's a selective form of criticism. They don't apply it to their own religion, obviously. Now, what I've also seen, uh, to go back to, to gay bashing, is it, talking about schools, that's applied and people will ignore it, teachers will ignore it, they will say, oh, it's just being kids being kids, and they won't really attribute any value to that. They... Uh, won't attribute any value to that sort of hate speech, which I think happens in our culture with Islamophobia. Tensions are high at the moment. People are upset. You probably saw this during World War II towards the Japanese. It's just a, a situation, and we just have to give people some leeway when they're being racist, hateful bigots. When, when really, I mean, there shouldn't be any sort of, of tolerance for that. I, I went to school in, in Norfolk, Nebraska for a time, and I, there was even an instructor that went on an uh, anti-immigrant tirade going on about Mexican immigrants because uh, there was that shooting at a bank there where, where several people were killed. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's amazing here in Nebraska how prevalent that just racist attitudes are, and a lot of people don't even recognize that you know, they're, they have this bigoted opinion. They, they don't realize that they're being racist. To me, it seems that the anti-immigration movement is really a safe haven for a lot of racism. Yeah. Because it's not direct, but obviously when people talk about anti-immigration, they're talking mostly about keeping the Mexicans out of our country. I mean, here in Lincoln, we have a newly formed group about a couple of years ago, a Minuteman organization, which is an anti-immigrant organization that you want to keep immigrants out of the United States, illegal immigrants. They're, they're essentially, they've got this sort of paramilitary yeah. attitude of packing up their guns, going down to the Mexican border, and ultimately taking pot shots at anyone who's just desperate yeah. enough to cross the desert. They've yeah. got their identity politics. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Lincoln now has this uh, Minuteman group, and they... From what the paper said, they have you know ten or fifteen people at their meetings, and ironically enough, their leader is himself originally an illegal immigrant yeah. from Soviet-occupied Eastern Europe from yeah. forty years ago. No, he's not from Mexico, right. so he's not a hypocrite. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 that's the that's kind of the funny thing about the anti-immigrant, they're taking our jobs mentality, and I got a second point to make about this, but the first one, obviously, you know, they're taking our jobs, you know, as, as if. There are, you know, affluent middle class white people who are lining up to get jobs in meatpacking plants. <laughs> and you know, who want to pick fruit yeah. you know, in California for less than minimum wage. You know, I think there was a point, you know, th three, four, five years ago when 
mean, Dan Rather is from Texas, but I think Peter Jennings and the other major news anchor at the time were both Canadian. You know, these guys are immigrants, and they're coming in, and they're taking actually rather nice jobs, and nobody notices because they're white guys who speak perfect English. Yeah. But obviously, the, the other point I was going to make about that, as far as the, the immigrant thing goes, I mean, this sort of take off, they're taking our jobs attitude, I mean, these kind of people, they make a convenient scapegoat for a system without any, that doesn't have any interest in full employment for the population. Really, the, the government, they want to have an army of unemployed ready to fill jobs if people should strike. That way it keeps the power in the hands of the employers. I mean, they'll pay people to remain unemployed, basically. Is this system that... I mean, ra rather than people who are unemployed or who are underemployed or who aren't getting paid well enough for their work, rather than confronting a system that doesn't believe in full employment and indeed exploits unemployment and underemployment to keep wages down for the people who are quote-unquote fortunate enough to have full-time work. You know, rather than, than confronting this issue, you just, I mean, you blame people who are desperate enough to flee their homes to take the most menial tasks yeah. in this country. To bring this from, from a macroscopic view... We as a, a privileged country, as a country that has the majority of the resource stranglehold on the planet, you really don't want the army of the unemployed to grow too large. You don't want that sort of pressure. You want an army of the unemployed that's large enough uh, to force people into jobs that they don't want to do for not enough pay to survive, but you don't want too many immigrants coming into the country with too many demands to create any sort of movement. And I know we're starting to stray here from our initial concept of identity politics, and I, I think we can tie it back, actually, pretty quickly, because, I mean, there has traditionally been a kind of anti-immigrant nationalist bias to trade unions in this country and a lot of blue-collar workers, and, I mean, isn't that just another form of identity politics where it's just, we want the jobs, keep these other people out? Mm -hmm. When you look at it, the reason why people are so willing to come to this country and the reason they'll risk their lives to do it is because, I mean, because of the capitalist system, the money here is worth more to them. And that's why they won't go to these risks to come here is because then they can send the money back home. Well, also, the money is worth so much more there. Well, so also, it, we spend a great deal of time bombing their homes so you know when everything has been destroyed over there they're going to want to go somewhere i don't even think that from inside this country we can put a value on why people come here because in certain places they believe that the streets are paved with gold here i mean what do people outside of the country really think about what life here is like it's kind of interest it's kind of an interesting statement on how gross propaganda can kind of turn a population against its government, but it's it's kind of an interesting example where you're talking about, I mean, back in in the Soviet Union, you know, with its crude, heavy-handed propaganda used to make a lot of hay amongst its own people about how the United States is such a rich country, but there are people on the streets. I mean, they don't even have homes or food for all their people because they don't care. And a lot of times the, the Soviet people, the Russian people, didn't even believe the propaganda because the Soviet machine was so crude. They couldn't even believe that there was such a thing as homelessness in the United States. 
Well, there really is no no reason to it whatsoever. I mean, we can feed people on the scraps that we throw away every day, yeah. and we can give people homes that are empty currently. <laughs> and there's a lot, I mean, there's groups like Food Not Bombs, which is primarily a anarchist-associated group. Uh, they do a lot of work where they do take the food that is just going to waste and they redistribute it so people can actually consume it. But that activity is actually illegal, and if they get caught taking the food that's being thrown into the into the garbage, they'll be uh, prosecuted for it. It's just really amazing. The government likes to throw the health codes yeah. at them about it. But yeah. it's, you know, what's a healthier choice? I mean, eating some possibly suspect food or starving. I mean, indefinitely being malnourished, but... Obviously, nothing with the, f the food, not bombs in particular, is that they have this kind of vegetarian, vegan impulse. So, I mean, the, the risks aren't usually quite as much when you're, as far as food safety, when you're not dealing with animal products. Well, and why is some of this food wasted? I've seen some of this food thrown away. Six individual salads in a container thrown away. An entire pumpkin pie in a container, untouched, thrown away. Yeah. This has become the episode about everything other than identity <laughs> politics. And we kind of yes. need this. We need to kind of tie it. Back I guess you could uh, you could tie it back to the immigration thing by saying like immigrants sort of get together and they form their own sort of groups and they went on they went on strike and they're sort of fighting for their causes. I guess I just have to go back to my original point. Are they are they very good at keeping in mind the bigger picture? The only groups that are going to be effective at bringing about any serious changes are groups that focus on human liberation in general, liberation from wage employment and uh, things like that. I, I I just don't see a lot do, of these gains that are made by these identity politic groups are gains that are temporary. Many of these people in these groups, do they acknowledge this larger thing? Here's a question, first of all. Is wage slavery an identity politic issue? No, because the majority of people do have to sell their mental or physical labor as a, as a form of existing. And, and I think that that's something that affects you, whether you're black, you're white, or you're Asian, or, or whatever your ethnicity or race is. So I don't really view it as a... I think it has to depend on how you're defining identity politics to a degree, because... I mean, ultimately, that, that is something that is directly affecting us and something that we are directly concerned with. And I mean, as far as that goes, that part of the definition seems to link up. You're talking about, you know, if you want to define identity politics as something that you're pursuing something which affects you but maybe isn't necessarily a, a universal issue, I mean, that much is true. The bosses and the manager class don't agree with anything that we're saying. They have a different class interest. And if you want to determine it in numbers, uh, let's talk about feminism or, or women's rights. Uh, they're more than half of the population of the entire world right there. <laughs> how, how much worth is, is there in uh, joining one of these causes? I mean, is, is there, there much value in like joining a, a feminist group or a you know, gay rights group, minority I think you can do a lot of good work, and I think that you can make a lot of positive changes for whatever group that you want to represent. But I, I, I really, again, I don't think that the changes that you make are going to be significant, and they're not, I mean, again, they're just going to help out 
this little niche that you've picked. As it stands, it seems that a lot of, if not most, of the people in these in these sort of groups, since since they aren't really acknowledging or are are even aware, maybe, or of of the, this larger fundamental issue with the the basic structure of our socioeconomic uh, society, there isn't any gains made by such a group really aren't going to amount to anything. That's kind of exactly the point I want to address here, is that you may advance the causes of one specific group, but kind of what Brian is saying, if you don't make it overall a human struggle, do you really say that everyone deserves to have a value, or is it just sorting, sort of putting a band-aid over a gunshot wound yeah. and you know, while we may have had civil rights, we may have had um, better rights for uh, African Americans here on paper as well as women. Uh, we're going to war, and all of a sudden, Islamic people are second-class citizens, and they're um, confronted when they try to use airplanes. I I actually want to disagree with with Brian and Andrew are saying here. Is this this idea that take an example? You're saying sort of the, the civil rights movement was good for black people to a degree and that was it and that's and that's not even necessarily true though because with the successes of the civil rights movement in the late 50s and early 60s ended up inspiring and sparking the women's liberation movement in the late 60s and ended up giving a lot of force and power to the anti-Vietnam war movement and these movements continued to mutate into anti-nuclear movement in the 80s environmental Progress and obviously the gay rights thing started to flower out of the successes of the feminist movement too. I don't see civil rights activism as being an identity politic issue. I, I was going to compare sort of the philosophies of Martin Luther King Jr. and that of Malcolm X, and a lot of people think that the reason Malcolm X is kind of a lesser known or a lesser talked about figure is because he was more militant. I don't think that was the reason why he wasn't as successful, I think it was because he focused more on black nationalism and black, solely black issues, whereas Martin Luther King made it a human issue. Civil rights wasn't, wasn't just rights for blacks, it was rights for all human beings. And I think that's why we recognize Martin Luther King Jr. as, as a more, more of a, a figure. Um, who, who do you mean by we? Just ever people in general, when they think of civil rights, they think the first Popular person that culture. yeah they think of Martin. I'm Luther going King to Jr. disagree entirely on that's why we recognize Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was more mainstream and he was a more of a religious icon, whereas Malcolm X was a radical, and he didn't he didn't accept that. He wanted full rights as a human being. He wanted no <laughs> no incremental improvements whatsoever. He wanted full recognition. But there but there was the the focus on blacks their rights alone and not civil rights as in human rights in general initially yes mm. well I, i'm going to say I think, that i'm going to say i think that I mean, as far as this little tangent is concerned my, martin luther king i think is more widely remembered and put on postage stamps in this country because his nonviolent rhetoric can be very easily manipulated into being a kind of pacifist acceptance yeah. of the system, whereas Malcolm X's militancy can't be so easily but To quote, but to quote Malcolm X here, he says, if someone sends a dog after you, you put that dog down. 
You defend yourself. Uh, Martin Luther King being so manipulatable. Can't that be said about about all this stuff that you were talking about, about minority rights and like inspiring women's rights and all of these sort of progressive movements that came out of it? As they grew and they become more well-known and more accepted into the mainstream, the, it seems like they sort of just got watered down and became a sort of Democratic Party sort of thing. Well, we're crossing the, the halfway point of our program here. This is Lunk Communicate number six, and we're talking about identity politics. Towards the end of, of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, sort of a more of a radical stance that he took. And, um, I mean, he still sort of upheld the pacifist mentality, but I, I don't think that... Uh, what was the kind of stuff he was saying, sort of right before... I, I want to address this. And Martin Luther King, when he did begin out, he was more of an ardent pacifism stance that any sort of violence is wrong and unacceptable. But he did come around towards the end, I want to say, and say that, well, people are, are using these means to defend themselves, and while I don't believe that's right, uh, that's... That's what people are doing to defend themselves. Yeah. And he, he was beginning to address uh, like more of what we were talking about, economic issues and the anti-human policies of poverty. Well, he was beginning and obviously he took a very, very hard line against the Vietnam War, too. Well, he, he was gradually becoming more sort of aware of how all of this oppression that was being inflicted and i mean he he was he was beginning to sort of talk more about about how all of this oppression sort of kind of come from the same place and and we're not we're not going to be able to really make any actual progress until that is addressed well yeah. i would i just like to to give a programmer's note here we're planning to do a a special show dedicated to Martin Luther King and sort of his forgotten last years in a couple of weeks in honor of MLK Day, so we should probably save some of this mojo for that show. And I didn't know that until you just said it. <laughs> now we do. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of people were probably thinking, how can you blame things like racism and sexism and things like that on capitalism, which is sort of the stance that I take. And I think that you can tie the two together. If you look at slavery, which is basically free labor, it's people that are in power, the people with ownership with control are using slaves and that's where a lot of the the racist sentiment in America comes from is from you know the beginnings of, of blacks being introduced into the culture as slaves my point about Martin Luther King developing more radical attitudes late in his life is that in current minority uh, groups and organizations and in in their leaders you don't see that you you don't see this this recognition of a larger thing. It, it's more let's rally around Obama and let's elect him, and then we we will make this fantastic sort of progress. And you're kind of you're kind of bringing us back to that very good question you had for us a few minutes ago that we didn't get to touch on directly. I mean, you were sort of asking about how these social movements, when they kind of hit the mainstream, how they're very quickly and effortlessly uh, co-opted by the Democratic Party and some of the NGOs in its orbit. And that's kind of what I was going to address. These organizations that have these behaviors, they're not from the grassroots. They're developed, they're moneyed organizations, 
and uh, they want to keep existing in the way that they exist now. Well, some of them start out as grassroots, exactly, and, and they also start out as far more radical than they and end then up they being. Change their politics once they get once they get more resources and funding and become like almost a or even a, a sort of corporate entity. They sell out, and, and so suddenly their their message gets watered down into a very simplistic. You know, uh, black people are human beings too. Remember that. Jackson, were you when you brought up civil rights? Were you making the point that identity politics can be a, a, power, a powerful force for change, or what was like when you were talking about how the war, the anti-war movement, and all these other things kind of branched out from the from what you viewed as an identity politic? I mean, I'm going to sort of counter your question with a rhetorical question. I mean, what's wrong with oppressed people confronting their own immediate issues? And since I'm sort of the person that's uh, expected to answer that, I think, as a general rule, I think most people come to the table of uh, progressive action and uh, politics from a, an identity politics perspective. Something affects them directly, and they come to this, but uh, I do think there's a form of subversion when there's these, kind of how Monty put it, these incorporated groups that tackle these issues specifically to you, and um, draw you into them as being extremely important and, in, in many cases, the most important issue, no matter what it is. And if you develop that sort of tunnel vision on your interests, which is, to put it simplistic, kind of a selfish way to look at it, you, you may, uh, you're basically limiting your movement and definitely your ability to network with other groups and be successful because when we're talking about the civil rights the civil rights was into any everything yeah and i was reading a, a gay man's uh, testimony that he marched in the civil rights uh, movements yeah i didn't i don't really view the civil rights movement as an identity politic movement but what he's saying is uh he, he kind of had a statement and he didn't address it as identity politics but when he's talking about people trying to take his rights away, he's asking, well, where are these people that I march with for their rights, and why yeah. don't they identify me as a person? Yeah, exactly. To answer your question, what's wrong with it, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. I think it's fine as long as they do realize that there's other problems out there that need to be addressed, and they don't just, like you said, get tunnel vision and view their, their one problem as the most important and the rest, rest of the world's problems have to take a back seat. Oppressed people fighting back is all well and good as long as what they are fighting is the actual source of their problems. And right. I don't personally see that happening very much. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a lot of groups out there, like the anti-poverty groups, put it into poverty they want to focus on improving social welfare programs or making them more accessible but it doesn't want to really do anything about the nature of the system in general they don't want to make any changes that will put people more in control all i see for the most part are these people essentially saying our group has as much of a right to climb that ladder yeah. as you do, and we should we should have the right to but be able they don't, to do that. But they don't want to do anything to get rid of the system that... They don't want to get rid of the ladder. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to get rid of the system that, that keeps people down. It, to function, it needs a it certain... Needs a it needs job. a large base, a bottom rung, to keep those that are, that are profiting off of this wealth. And they don't want to do anything to change that. I've got a bit of a tangential question here. You, you sort of brought up the, the anti-poverty thing a minute ago, and I think about 
like that one campaign with that yeah. messianic douchebag rock star Bono at the at the vanguard of it. What exactly is an identity politic and how can we define it? Can the anti-poverty movement really qualify as an identity politic when it's primarily a matter of affluent middle-class liberals who are just sort of acting on a charitable impulse? It's not, like, it's not something that really affects them directly, is it? I don't, I don't know if I'd call it identity politics, but I, I think I would refer to it as ineffectual. I mean, how really are you going to deal with something like poverty under capitalism? The way I look at this is I think anti-poverty is a little limiting. It's... You yeah, so, know, uh, you I mean, in the first place, I mean, I'll just ask my question again. It, does it count as an identity politic? Brian, Brian said no, and I don't know. I would say, in a sense, it depends on how you define anti-poverty. And like I would, the Bono types. Right, I would probably define that as, in a sense, an identity politic. Obviously, Bono isn't... Um, isn't anything approaching po- impoverished. But <laughs> the thing is, we're looking at the very bottom, the... The, the lower portion, the dirt under the carpet, the people that are at the very, very bottom. And these people are the ones that need to have a decent quality of life, whatever you want that to be. That's not challenging the economic system itself. That's just saying, well, everyone needs to have a reasonably poor standard of life. I don't, I don't think you really answered my question. You're going to take the position, how is, the, how is a Bono-type anti-poverty crusader engaging in identity politics, though? Well, obviously, Bono himself isn't engaging in identity politics. I would probably kind of classify that as a feel-good charity. You get to feel I mean, good about yourself by yeah, helping out the, the bottom of society. Yeah. This is talking about charities, which almost seems like its own show. Yeah. It really is. One more jab at this celebrity philanthropist-type activity. Like, How admirable is it when someone who has you know bill- millions and billions of dollars or however much money they have... How admirable is it, admirable they can, is it they that can they can donate their time, but they don't spend much time opening their pocketbook? If you had that much money, I mean, to sleep at night, you would have to do something to to better other people. Because really, how can you sit in your mansion knowing that there's people in the city that you live in that... Are sleeping on the street. Yeah, exactly. Are lining up at a soup kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's amazing to me, though, is all these affluent, wealthy, and possibly famous people, they all get in a room, they have a nice warm meal, and they have a circle jerk talking about how good they are and how much they're doing for society. Maybe they're spending 0.01% of their income to help these people. I mean, they're, they're basically just reaching into their pockets and pulling out a couple quarters and saying, here you go. Who is it? Is it Buffett that contributes about 1% of his annual income to chari- charitable causes? I mean, 1%? And, or, or Bill Gates. There's Bill Gates. And, who and, contributes, and everyone thinks that he's a saint. Well, everybody, and, and, every, a small and everybody talks about these people as, like, great that they're giving their money to this causes and these charities and all this stuff, and... I mean, it's the a tax thing, write-off. The thing is, to normal people, it seems like they're giving a lot of money, but to them, it, it's just yeah. nothing. It's, pocket it's like, it's like just just th- throwing some quarters into a gumball machine. It's just it's nothing to them. Yeah. And it's something that they have that I think we need to question why they have it to begin with. And another issue is just the the fame. Now, someone puts their face on it, and that makes them a good person. But ordinary people can't do that. That's a status that they're given. They're using a status that I think we need to question why they have it in the first place. So identity politics. Yeah, uh, we're talking about identity politics here. So how today. much? Well, how much? How much? How much progress? I mean, you're talking about sort of 
I mean, a while ago, you're talking about sort of the, the history of how sort of movements inspire other movements and mm-hmm. sort of all of these things get created and we all have a fun time. But how much progress has actually been made over this period of time? And we, I see these sort of these sort of superficial, yeah, okay, we, we, we got an African-American president, the, the most absolute business class African-American president ever. So it's like, where is the progress? I think that the progress that is made, unfortunately, it's, it's not built on concrete and it's subject to, to be washed away, you know, it's unfortunately. In James Lowen's great, great book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, James Lowen, Lies My Teacher Told Me. If you haven't read it, there's something wrong with you. Go read it right ah. now. I already know there's something wrong with me. <laughs> we covered that in the last show. We did cover it in the last show, but I'm going to thump it every chance I get. But one of the biggest points he makes in that book, one of the biggest bits of rhetorical propaganda in the American system really is the progress myth. Mm-hmm. This idea that we are just climbing like we're... If you could quantify progress and put it on a, a line graph, it's just a straight line up. It's just a straight vertical slope, practically. Now, what supports the progress myth is the nature of class itself. There's an insulation, and you insulate every group of society. You know, when you only see people that are basically your peers, uh, you think everything's going great, or you think you can do better. Or you think that there is some sort of progress when you don't when you don't see the people that are on the streets, and I think we try to hide them away as much as possible. But, but seemed- just this this idea of the progress myth. Try to go back to that just for a little bit longer. I mean, the thing about it is just you know, black people got freed after slavery. Onward and upward. From now that there. we have a black president, so you know. people point to that as like, well, you can't say that we are still in those dark times because look at what we've done. Look at what we have accomplished. We have a black president. We have, I mean, homosexuals and can't are get getting married. Can't you know they're they're well, no, but the argument is that like they are being recognized more as as normal people and yeah. and you know they're being more accepted and more different kinds of people are being accepted and look at look at all the these wonderful things that have happened um what what do you what do you mean that that there hasn't been any progress to go into some of lowen's into lowen's studies he actually points out that possibly the peak point of political power for black people in this country was about the year 1880 i mean at the height of reconstruction there were more blacks in the federal government than there are today you know Supposedly, you've got this black president now, but it's just, you know, I think at the time in, in 1880, there were something like four, five, six black senators. When Obama was elected president, he was the only black senator. I'm thinking of one of the message boards that I frequent. There's a liberal patriot on there who, he, I brought up the progress myth to him, and, and he was saying, well, you know, this country started out with, with African-American slaves, and now we have an African-American president. To uh, rebuttal to that, I said, well, look at, look at the plight of black people in the country. How much better off are they today than they were as slaves? I mean, if they're emancipated now, of course, but look at, look at the, the vast amount of poverty that you see in the black communities and in, in other communities. Look at the, you know, the American Indians. Are, are they much better off today than when uh, the Europeans invaded. 
it's just really, I mean, if you're looking at progress, it doesn't seem like it is this precipitous incline. It, it seems more like a kind of even punctuated thing where the, you, they gain some rise yeah, and then they lose there'll some. Be, there'll be some peaks at the yeah. height of social movements, yeah. and then when the movements start to lose power, there are deep, deep Gross. valleys. Emancipation, which I think is probably one of the best examples of this, recognized as just uh, an astonishing recognition of human rights. Well, emancipation, you make it sound really great, and you say it's this amazing thing, but what did they do to the former slaves? They, it was basically a form of exile. No one necessarily had to pay for them or give them any food. They didn't even give them the land that they were promised. They put them out on the streets without food, without any form of being able to take care of themselves. People that that weren't allowed to read and weren't allowed to learn and do things, and, and no they just formal, threw them out. That's no formal, emancipation. No formal education to reintegrate into the society. So, so these things are written as great things in history books. Emancipation, our great savior, uh, Abraham Lincoln, and they basically just exiled everyone and threw them out on the street and people starved and died. When I look at it, it looks like something that was necessary, that had to have been done. It's not really something that's... Abraham Lincoln is incredibly honorable for for emancipating. It's like, no, this is something that pragmatically they had to take that step. I mean, if you if you, if you have an increasing population of, of African-American slaves you're, and you have these frequent insurrections, you're going to face more and more problems. I think that slavery just logistically they had to get rid of it. Seems to me like that can be said for pretty much all of these kinds of movements, can't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, social welfare, I mean, you have to give the poor some appeasement or they're going to take up arms and they're going to demand justice. Well, there's that, there's that, and on top of that, then you can say, hey, look, the system can work. Yeah, we, right. we, can, we can make these wonderful improvements. Look how benevolent capitalism can right. be. You can, can, you can manipula manipulate it after the fact and say how, how great the system was and how great our leaders were to do it. And I think... The civil rights and movements like this illustrate it very well, in a sense. Now, did they do it because they wanted to recognize human rights? No, they did it because people became too much of a problem. Yeah. The movement became too much of a hassle, it became too costly, it became too large, and encouraged other movements to take up and fight the system right. for their own rights. It's much easier to sort of make some concessions and give some money other rather than sort of accept your fate of being completely overthrown you don't want you don't want that you would you would much rather just you know give some you know money out and say here hey you know we're gonna make a compromise here with you and look how great we are that we are now going to give you something resembling what you want I think the the main point from all of this discussion is that these changes that are made for the benefit of these people always come from the people that are affected. It's not ever benevolence from the top down that makes these things change. Like, a lot of people will attribute great things like emancipation of slaves to people like Abraham Lincoln. And not to say that he doesn't deserve some credit for that, but what about the abolitionists, the militant ones, the people that were actually causing the agitation that, that made this something that needed to be taken care of? The people and, that put their lives on the line and rebelled. John, John Brown and... And people like that, and the, and the slaves that actually revolted. I mean, these are the things where the white people in power are like, yeah, we need to do something about this. That's why they said it was something that, you know, they needed to take care of. It wasn't like, yeah, we developed compassion through cultural evolution. It's, no, we have to do something about it now. And I think that's the value of remembering the civil rights movements as they were. 
people were shot and people were gassed and people were beaten and people were brutalized. By police dogs. They were brutalized and dehumanized to They're get these long. rights. It wasn't handed down from above. It was people struggling and putting their lives and everything that they valued online. Here's another problem, though. All of these struggles and accomplishments, once these people in these groups sort of accomplish their immediate goals... They seem to sort of back off, and there there isn't this idea that hey, we should keep going, we should keep doing this and do more things and be even more uh, militant than than we were and get more. I want to play counterpoint on this argument because I think there is a certain understandability of why people back off. You're in the civil rights movements. You're fighting hard day and day and night, and you're struggling. You're marching in the streets. You're being beaten. At some point, psychologically, you're going to want to say, "Well, hopefully, hopefully, we made a change, and I'd like to have a life." As soon as we get, as soon as we get over that next hill, I'm going to take a vacation. Yeah. Now, I, I understand people I mean, people want a respite from from this horrible event, but isn't it also the system taking advantage of people needing a break? and needing to feel that they've accomplished something. Well, yeah, you go, you go on vacation, and that's when you lose all your shit again. <laughs> right. And th- I think that, you know, that the nature of human interaction, human community, is always going to be messy. And even if my ideal of society was ever met, I think there were, we would still encounter numerous problems that would need to be addressed, and there would still need to be a lot of, be a lot of issues that come up don't really view myself as a utopian in that I think that any sort of society without problem at all is ever achievable. And I would say there's enough problems within human relationships and different personality types and disputes over resource management as it is without all forms of bigotry and hatred towards other people. Would it be safe to conclude that perhaps the problem with these identity politics is that uh, the, the world isn't going to change by just minorities standing up and just gay people and standing up or women standing up. And every, everybody has to stand up and, and fight against the common cause that is oppressing everyone rather than the specific oppressors that are oppressing these particular groups. Okay, here's the thing. I mean, we're, we're actually down inside of five minutes on the show now already. And, I mean... What are, what are we advocating then? I mean, we've been sort of complaining about this. I mean, we've been, you know, there's been a lot of buzzwords, obviously, a lot of complaining about tunnel vision, about people having, setting your eyes on, on the biggest prize, on, on fighting the true enemy. What, what does this mean? What do we really advocate here? Now, I want to take a side point real quick here. Uh, kind of what Brian said and what we talked about the civil rights movement was that it wasn't just identity politics. It was a larger social struggle of people, of allies, of people networking together. And I think that is a a threat of these identity politics, very much that they expand and become a larger social movement. Now, you take that in the context of, say, uh, a guerrilla war or a popular struggle, if you have the support of the people, you can't really be stopped. I think that's what we need to advocate what you were asked. What are we fighting for? What are we, fighting what are we for? advocating here? We're advocating less of a stress on identity politics, but more of an inclusive sort of political view. Like, yes, I think that there does need to be 
feminist groups, and there does need to be yeah. groups that specifically target African-American issues. There, they need to be either a part of groups that are focusing more on human rights issues. You're talking about prioritization yeah. here, then. How do you sort of enforce those priorities? How do you maintain that focus on an organizational level? I think just call, calling out specific groups and, and people that are just focused on these one issues, criticizing them for it openly that you're focused on this and I agree that this is bad, but why not recognize all human issues and come about it? Present the point of view that you know the reason why we think the civil rights struggle was effective is because it was inclusive and it did focus on other. And people. I would consider that a respectful form of criticism. Now, when I talk to oppressed people or people that have these sort of identi identity politics, I respect where they come from. I respect their life experience. I'm an ally for you. All to be um, interested in all of these movements as a form of of human struggle. But here's the thing, though. I mean. I mean, we've all been railing against identity politics to some degree for the last hour or so, but, I mean, we're all white guys here, heterosexual U.S. citizens. You know, since these sort of identity politics we're railing against are really things that don't directly benefit us because we don't, any, we don't really have any of those extra hurdles. I mean, looking at some th things historically, I mean, there have been points where social movements where leadership has tried to say, well, we need to focus on goal A, you know, and the leaders are all men, and the women doing all the calls and roasting all the coffee go, well, wait a minute, you know, when, when are we going to get our needs met? And they go, well, you know, after we get our goal A met, but we're women suffering now. Are we not sort of spitting in the face of people who have these, these extra societal burdens on them? Are we sort of asking them to defer on their goals to help us fight this thing that affects us. Maybe you should just go ask your secretary, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would take this back to uh, being respectful. Now, people in identify, identity politics, they play a role in their own movement and their voices need to be heard. You definitely need to respect people and not shout over them. But you need to understand that whatever you're being oppressed for, you need to take it into context. That other people are being oppressed for different reasons and that there should be a form of solidarity between all people. That's sort of like the Black Panthers. They were an identity politic group and they became more inclusive. We're out of time for now. This has been communique number six for Brian, Andrew, Monty. I'm Jackson. We'll get you next time.